Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, outtakes from About the Cards. The other night I was on for an hour with uh, Steph and Angela and Ben. A wide-ranging conversation, a lot of economics, as you would expect from Ben. Thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsey.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, guys, for inviting me on. Had a good time. There's two kinds of compilations you're talking about. One is compiling the raw data, and the other is synthesizing that data to come up with a price. I, I think probably in those days, the first part was harder than the second part because the raw data did not just jump out at you. In the pre-eBay days, we had guys going to the West Coast, the East Coast, the Midwest. We had people on the phone talking to dealers. There weren't as many cards. Certainly once the magazines got rolling and had pretty broad acceptance, you were looking at uh, kind of a differential, what it was selling above the book or below. So there was a reference point there. The very first one, yeah, that was a big accomplishment to get prices when there's nothing there. Although there wasn't really nothing. There were some known what cards were selling for. But the, the, the first book and the first magazine that really set the baseline, those were major contributions to hobby. After that, it was still hard, but it was not as hard. It was like you're looking for arrows up and you're asking the dealers what went up. What are you selling for more? We were the only ones, I think, that really tried to verify that it wasn't just somebody's opinion, but we had observed at the show sure. or we had sure. dealers that we built a level of trust because we had verified a lot of what they had said over the years. When you have a semi-encyclopedia of pricing that, that goes decades long with all of the major releases, kudos because you're putting together a national, if not international, price guide at that time that everybody's going to rely on. And, and the socioeconomics are different from city to city, let alone state to state. That was part of the finalizing because there were regional differences that were much greater back in the day than they are now. It's more global now, but there's not a universal currency, but there are less regional premiums when people can get anything anywhere and have it shipped to them. But back in the 80s, it sure wasn't like that. You'd see different pricing structure in New York than you would in California or in the Midwest. That's one of the reasons we had a price range, allow that there wasn't just one national price for everything. That's why it was called the Beckett Price Guide. I, I could sit up tonight and comp any given card if you gave me a homework exercise because I have all of these resources at my, my, my fingertips. We all do, and we can all verify it. You can look up anything you want to look up in, but just try to look up a page worth of the 52 tops. It takes a while if you're looking up card by sure. card. But I want to quibble with one word. You're saying we were establishing the value. That's one way to think of it. But basically, we weren't trying to say, this is what the card is worth. This is what the card was selling for during the, the period observed. Because there's so many cards that I finalized the price for, I didn't think the card was worth that. Some case I thought it was worth a lot more. Some things I thought it was worth a sure. lot less. But the activity over that past month or that past year put that card in that range. I just had to trust that these pricing anomalies that were obvious to me and obvious to other uh, people that were really into it would work themselves out if something was underpriced because that's the actual reporting we got or overpriced. In my opinion, it was the price of what they were selling for. And that was awkward. So I wouldn't say that was the value, but people treated it that way. You're correct. They thought that must be what it's worth. But that was what it sold for during that month. And the next month, if it went up, then it would have an arrow. So people weren't just using the prices blindly or with a deterministic fixed price. 
they said, that's what it is this month. This guy's had a good month. I'm going to try to get a little bit more. And if they were successful in getting more, then the price went up or vice versa. Yeah. Economic markets have a tendency to work themselves out and, and rest and come to a conclusion where they appropriately should be over time, not necessarily in a snapshot. Short term. In fact, that's what's fun and dynamic about the hobby. The volatility is advantage to those who are knowledgeable. And I regard knowledge, Ben, as not the ability to look something up. It's the understanding of not just where to look, but having a pretty good idea of what you're going to find when you look it up, that you have some insights, not just here's what it says, and I've got to go by that only. How to interpret the data. Are sellers in today's hobby too reliant on comp? Not for the more expensive cards. Anybody selling an expensive card needs to do all the homework they can. But if you've got to do a comp for a $2 card, that's a problem. You've got to know what card is worth checking comps for. How often do dealers come up to you in person claiming that the prices in your price guide were too low or too high? In the last 16 and a half years, it hadn't happened uh, very much at all. That uh, I've been retired. But before that, it wasn't as much as you would think. But what would please me, like we said about bad reputation versus no reputation, if nobody cared at all, that'd be bad. So given that people are going to care and some people are going to care deeply, our hope was that there was some evening out of the criticism of one guy coming up and saying, yeah, you're way too high. And then the next guy, well, you're way too low. And I say, why don't you two guys talk to each other? <laughs> but so if the criticism was evened out, but if we were perfect, we wouldn't have done it different. The next month we said, hey, the prices are still the same. No, we were getting feedback and we, we welcomed the feedback because it was a moving target. Now, I, I think the word junk as part of junk wax is considered dirty. These cards have a worth, monetary worth, maybe not as much as they once had, a super collected specific junk wax era card. It means the world to me as a collector. Um, junk wax era was oversaturated and, and the plethora of cards that they made. In your experience, are we currently in a junk wax era 2.0 of sorts? I would say no, Ben. The danger signs that I would see if too much of the current wax, there's been a resurgence of junk, quote unquote, wax. Junk common cards from the late 80s, very early 90s are still junk. But unopened product from the late 80s, early 90s has some cachet even. They're now saleable. Now, I don't know why somebody would want to grade them, but that's their prerogative. So to say there were some junk cards that were overproduced, where even the big stars, there's more supply than the demand can handle almost at any price. Okay, we're not having that just yet, but if cases are being put back and not opened for some future huge payday, like I said, if 10% of the current product that's produced is held back, that'd be a lot. If it's less than that, I'm okay. But I think in the late 80s, early 90s, there may have been 50% of the cases sitting in garages. It just takes a few people to say, hey, I'm going to sell my cases now because my kid's going to go to college And then they found out these cases, they're getting pennies on the dollar. And so that would be the problem if there's too much hoarding or setting back. The other danger sign is if the common cards that are in the current sets, less than the big stars, if they are held in low esteem to where nobody cares and they're not saleable at any price, that would be another danger sign. That you open up a high-end product and if you don't get something that's low-numbered, game-used, autograph, RPA, 
that it's junk in the sense that you're not even going to bother to sell it and nobody wants it. That would be another danger sign. I'm a believer in the long tail. If, if the supply-demand equilibrium is maintained, we're going to have a nice long ride for this hobby. I, I see it as a junk wax era 2.0 on steroids just because of the oversaturation and all of the on-demand and countless parallels thereof and billions of cards that are going to be produced each and every year when we count all of the base across all sports. Do you think that this current market was sustainable over, say, the next three to five years. Ben, I'm not going to fully agree with you, but I understand your economic educational pedigree. This is not a multi-level marketing thing, but anytime you have more people coming in, in other words, supply is actually increasing over these years. They're increasing the supply. But the demand, or at least the amount of new entrants into the space, is greater in the last 18 months than it's been at any period in my lifetime in the hobby. Even if what you're saying is true, it's really being masked by this great influx of half the people in national coming their first national. If that growth, that dynamism in the hobby, if it slows down or stops, then you have the potential for a problem that you have the supply-demand equilibrium can be broken because they're putting out more cards because we have more collectors. That's what they're going to say. And they're selling. They're not going unsold. In fact, people are still looking for them, but when everything needs to be able to find its way to an end user, and that's not what was happening 30 years ago, 35 no, years ago. This is an economic bubble, and we've seen really since 2017 a right-sided trajectory with very few dips, and it was escalated considerably around March of last year as COVID hit. At some point, the fringe money or temporary money will start to wane, and people will go back to normalcy. Two things. I don't like bubble because uh, almost all bubbles pop. All balloons do not necessarily pop. Balloons can have the air let out of them. And basically, there's two ways the economy can grow and two ways businesses can grow. And that's to get more customers or to get more money from the customers that you have. What's happening right now is both of those. There are more sure. people coming in and the people that are already in are spending more money because they have an optimism. Again, if the optimism reversed, People say, ah, gee, I don't know about this. And individuals are spending less and you had less new entrants, then prices are going to plateau and perhaps even recede. But at the core of it, there's a really fun hobby. And that's what I'm banking on. Where do you see the hobby in five years? I've been asked this before, and I, I think it's aspirational, Ben. I think we all should have a desire that the hobby would grow. Now, it can't double every year for five years, <laughs> but if it has some growth for the next five years, where they're building the foundation as they go, and the new collectors are being integrated in. They're not coming and leaving, but they're coming and bringing their friends and staying. That's how it could work. That's what I'm aspiring to, and I'm going to work toward with my podcast. I want to help people to not get burned, to be able to have a long-term view. You guys are doing that, too. Your, your podcast, it's by collectors, for collectors, and if collectors hang in there, the, the headlines are taken up by all these world record prices. But the, the real meat of the hobby is not that's a few individuals that are bidding against each other to make the headlines because they have lots of extra money. But at the national, 99% of the sales are not things that the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times is interested in. There are people buying cards that they like that are $100 and less, not 100000 or more. If it's 1958 and I want to save a card, was there anything available for me to put it in? It's way worse than that. <laughs> if you were in the neighborhood and you tried to do white gloves with your cards, you'd probably get beat up. 
So it's more or less wet, wet. No thought of value. In fact, a lot of times the kids at the end of the year, I was the recipient at least one year. It's the end of the year. I don't need the cards anymore. That's why I'll take them. All right. Cool. Okay. But nobody was talking about that. You would never trade last year's cards for this year's cards. It was all about this year's cards. To take extra good care of them, we were flipping them, the leaners (laughs) against the wall. If you were a condition freak, you would be socially outcast. You wouldn't be in my friend group. Was it in the mid-80s when people were like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should start protecting this, or was it earlier? The products, probably in the 80s, certainly in the 90s. There were plastic sheets more so than penny sleeves or top loaders or semi-rigids, card savers. To me, that's a later phenomenon. But, But the problem was some of the early plastic sheets were worse than nothing. They were, they were PVC. The- if you put them in the wrong humidity or temperature, you had a plastic sandwich with a card in between. One of our, our listeners and, and good friends, James Kikowski, says, arguing with Dr. Jim is like arguing theology with God. And- <laughs> Guys, that is, that is, uh, let me just say there's one word for that, and that's called blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't want to get struck okay. by lightning, guys. <laughs> so, so perhaps maybe not God, but maybe you'll like the a listener of ours. DR says, love the show, guys. Dr. Beckett, earlier today, people voted in a hobby Twitter survey that you are the Yoda of the hobby. Your thoughts about that? Is it baby Yoda? <laughs> <laughs> the all wise and knowing. Uh, Yoda in his prime. Yeah, Actually, he was a baby. Next thing you know, he looked like he's really old in all the original movies. But yeah. Or wrinkly, at least. So I don't think it's a compliment, guys. <laughs> uh, has there ever been a card where you just wanted to hoard it? Not because it was going to have some type of a future monetary worth, but just a good-looking card, perhaps. Well, maybe there's a subtle difference, but I have not done that. But I do have more than two copies of some cards that are good cards. But it's not because I accumulate them as much as I didn't get rid of them. If I bought a gotcha. collection and it had Clemente cards in it, if the condition was not so great... Maybe I'd sell it, trade it off, something like that, if I already had it. But if it was decent condition, I thought, this is good trade material. So if there ever ever was a trade night, I'd have some decent stuff to trade. That's why you are the Yoda, as uh, voted on by Hobby Twitter today. Uh, I tell my wife that that, that I was voted Yoda? That is not very (laughs) inspiring. Would you rather be Han Solo? He he died in the last movie. Number seven, yeah. yeah. If you choose to acknowledge this. (laughs) Uh, so <laughs> I don't want to be Darth Vader. I want to be Luke. I just if, if we can ask one last question, and it's actually uh, something that I, maybe the Mandalorian. Mm. That's a good one. Sure. 